0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we have uh, a lot to discuss, um, mostly this uh, amazing um, utopian economic system that the, that the Torah puts at, um, which is called Shemitah Inyovo. and Yovo. Uh, and I, I want to explore it within the context of just understanding um, alternate economic models um, mostly the most prevalent ones of, say, the last 100 years or so. And these are basically on one extreme capitalism and on the other extreme communism. And then you have socialism uh, in between. And what's, what's um, interesting is to, um, to contextualize the whole Torah notion of Shemitah. Now, what was Shemitah exactly? Shmita said that every seventh year you would allow your fields to lay fallow, meaning you wouldn't plant them. And so that was kind of an off year. Now we know from modern science um, that this uh, is, is is a proven way for the um, soil to get the nutrients it needs again so that the earth isn't tapped out of all the amazing um, blessings of growth that it can give us the plants and everything like that. So, so we know this again from just uh, modern science, that this is a a great way to make crops grow. But there's a much deeper um, teaching here, which is the concept that the land itself belongs to God. And that's an amazing idea. Because if you think about it, if you compare that to communism and capitalism, capitalism says, it all belongs to me. And communism, ironically, while it begins to say, it all belongs to the workers... Ultimately, the way it was instituted, it goes back to it all belongs to me, <laughs> me being in this case the limited, you know, leaders who then enslave the workers as, as it works out. But, but anyway, just in terms of, let's just speak more idealistically, in, in a capitalistic system, the land belongs to me because I own it, it's my land. In the communist version, which is the, again the other end of this spectrum, the, the, the property belongs to the workers, right? But here's the Shemitah system, which says that you don't plant the land, and you leave the land alone the seventh year, because the land belongs to God. This is an amazing idea, because in, in terms of assets, there's no more concrete asset than real estate. As they say in real estate circles, God only made a little bit of it, and he's not making any more. Right? So... So land itself throughout the ages has been really the ultimate asset. I remember I went to college with a, a southern gentleman. His uncle was a, a, the, the senator from Louisiana. And I remember he said to me, he said, uh, buy land and never sell it. That was his um, family's motto. So, so the, the, the idea is that, um, that you begin to think differently when, when, when the land doesn't belong to you. All right? You know, um, but, but the, the Torah goes actually in, in even more profoundly in this direction because it says that um, when the Jews left Egypt and they entered into the land of Israel, the land of Israel was divided up among the tribes. And actually, there's an interesting thing. The, if, you, if you look, the, the Medrash says that since it was sort of unclear, you know, so, so there would be no arguments, let's, let's put it that way, over which portion of land went, went to each tribe, they did a lottery system. And it says that the lots themselves talked, the lots themselves announced which piece of land went to which tribe. Mm-hmm. And I just bring that up because um, you know, in Harry Potter, which is a, you know hugely popular today, um, when a person was going to be assigned which house they were going to go into, they would go, they would take it out of the what is it called the speaking hat or something sorting like that, the, hat. the sorting hat, and the and the the hat would announce which piece of land. Each tribe, or each which house, each person would go into. So it, it's just like a, a very exact uh, parallel from the Torah. There, um, I don't know if that was her inspiration or not. I don't know, but anyway, it's just sort of a, a cool tidbit. But um, so moving on, though, we say that in the in the fiftieth year, though, that was the Yovil year, and just so because we're going to get into a further understanding of that, the Yovel year was. Seven times seven, so meaning to say every seventh year was the Shemitah year and then you had a cycle of seven Shemitahs, so that culminates in 49 years, Mm -hmm. and then the 50th year was the yovel year. That's, That's translated as the Jubilee year and all slaves went free. Now, if you had a piece of land, a family land, remember, because the land was divided up among the tribes, if you had a piece of family land and for economic reasons you had to sell it, in order to get some cash at a certain point, right? So, the 50th year, during the Jubilee year, the land reverted back to you. So this is an amazing, it's like, God, again, just to talk about utopian economics as a, just a different economic vision that the Torah is putting forth, the idea that God hits the reset button, slaves go free, And now remember, who was a slave? A slave was someone who got into economic debt and basically had to sell themselves in order to pay back their debt. Usually it was someone who stole, actually. So so, anyway, but the point being that slaves go free and then the land reverts back to its original owner. Now why does the land revert back to its original owner? Not because fundamentally the land belonged to that person, but because the person who owns it at that moment, it doesn't belong to him. It belongs to God. Do you understand? Mm. So you have expressions in like English, for instance, this is as firm as the land I'm standing on. In other words, the, the, it, just in terms of, um, just the way people conceptualize things, there's nothing, we, we talk about terra firma. Terra firma means firm land, meaning to say there's nothing more, nothing more, absolutely fundamental and basic and foundational than the land itself. And now what are we hearing? That the land itself belongs to God, not to us. Now, psychologically, spiritually, economically, these are very amazing concepts because they force you to approach your life differently. See, imagine, imagine the lessons that everyone is learning um, when the, when the Jubilee year cycles over. Right, and the land is changed over. Imagine that you've been a person who's amassed, like from all the people who have had to sell their land, you've amassed tracts of land from all these different estates, right? And you've become sort of like the, the citrus baron or something like that, right? And then all of a sudden at the 50th year, you, you you give it away. You return it back. What message does that send to, say, your son or your daughter? Right? Well, listen, isn't wealth somewhat temporal? Right? Shouldn't I concentrate on the things that will last forever? And what is it that lasts forever? The Torah lasts forever. God lasts forever. Kindness to each other lasts forever. Right? So, all of these things, like, these are like major um, paradigm shifts that happen in people's lives, and then they reprioritize the way that you approach your life. Because we know that we all have souls. And that our soul is eternal. So these things force you to think about the grandest picture. OK. So, so now I want to make one more point, because you know, in, sometimes um, we should be safe from them. economic times get tough. And then if you read in the newspapers and things like that, they'll say, "Well, this is the pendulum swinging. You know? The pendulum will swing back to more boom times, right? And then when you're in boom times, they say, okay, you know something? Save your money, because the pendulum's going to swing again, and things will get hard again. So, so we have this concept, and it's respected in, you know, certain, certainly all modern economic thinking, that there are cycles within markets. Okay? So where do you see that in the Torah? Where do you see that in the Torah? So, so you see it, this is one example that I said, but I want to suggest maybe even a more profound example where you see cycles within the market and and suggest that it's actually built into the reality of the world. And that's the Shemitah itself. Because it says that we don't work the land the seventh year, and then if you're then going to plant in the eighth year, then you're not going to harvest until the ninth year. So that that's actually... Two years where you're not getting a fresh new crop, okay? So what does God say? God says in the sixth year, I'm going to give you a boom crop. I'm going to give you a huge amount of produce. And actually, it's very interesting the way the rabbis understand this. Because, you see, sometimes a little is a lot. You know, I, I just tell you, this is, you know, just a strange example of this. But just to personalize it for a moment... I remember when um, when I was in summer camp, and they they gave out um, sugar cereal, but in the small little boxes, you know those like small little boxes, and like people would like run and tackle each other like to get Fruit Loops or Apple Jacks, like these were like this was like gold, you know. Mm-hmm. And then you had one of those things, and you had a you know just like a small little bowl of Apple Jacks, and you were convinced that. Applejacks were the greatest things on earth, right? And then I remember coming home that summer and I thought, you know, I said to my, my mother, uh, today's Mother's Day, right? She should rest in peace. Sarachaya, Ari haklein, You know, Shema should have an allele. All these words of Torah should be for her. And all the words I ever say. So, um, so anyway, so, and I got to throw in my dad, you know. <laughs> How can I not? Leib and Svia, Leiby. So, I um, so, love you both so much. So, I remember I, I, I said to her, Mom, can you, can, you, can you get the Apple Jacks, you know? And uh, she said, sure. And she got me this big box, right? And, I, and she put it right in front of me on the, on, the, on, the, on the kitchen table. And I didn't have to fight anyone for them. And I could pour as much as I liked. And they didn't taste nearly as good. (laughs) There's there's something about something being hard to get that makes it better. Now, I'll give you... They did a modern psychological study on this, by the way. Which is... You ready for this? This is really interesting. That that the last chocolate that you eat tastes better than the rest... (laughs) They they did a test, I read this, and they, they did a study with people, and they said, here, eat these chocolates, and then you ate the chocolates, right? And they said, you know, rank them, or whatever it is. I guess they were different chocolates. Um, and, and then, that was the control group. Then they did the experimental group, where the last one that they took, after several chocolates, they tell them before they ate it, this is the last one you're going to get. <laughs> and the last one that they ate... Just people knew to savor it, and to appreciate it, and it tasted better. Okay, I'll give you an example of this on in a spiritual level. I'll show you what the rabbis do with this idea. And this is, we're all talking about Yobel still, so we're going to get back to Shemitah and everything like that. But just to understand just how our brains are hardwired. So, so we say, Shabbat veYinafash, Fash. Shabbat veYinafash. Fash. So, so this is the concept of um, the Neshami seira. So, what is that? That's the extra soul that you get on Shabbos. Now, some people think that you actually get a second soul on Shabbos. You don't get a second soul on Shabbos. At least the way Rashi understands it, and this just strikes me as just sensical. If you if you if you hear his words, what what it is is it's an, an it's an enlargement of your soul that allows you to better integrate. The material with the spiritual. That's what it is. So because we're supposed to eat better food on Shabbos and, you know, just, you know, just to enjoy certain aspects of different pleasures on Shabbos. And, And the idea is that you need a little more spiritual power to be able to absorb this increase of materiality and physicality in a holy way. And so that's what a Neshami is. That's what the extra soul means. An expansion of soul to be able to integrate physicality more spiritually. Okay? So, what does Shabbat Vayi mean? So it says Shabbat on Shabbos, Vayi and Oi to the Nefesh. Oi, you know, interestingly, Oi basically means our enemies. That's where this, um, that's where this, uh, when people go, oi, that, that, that's actually means our enemies. That, that, that's where that, that comes from. So for oi, so we're saying oi, meaning it's a, we're, we're struck by this extra nephesh, which is leaving us. Okay. So I thought we, we say this right as Shabbos is beginning in the, in the prayers, right as Shabbos is beginning. We reference Shabbat the So I thought that what it meant was, and this is from Rash Laakash, which is that the extra neshama is coming down on Shabbos and it's alerting us to the fact that you're about to get an expansion of your soul. I thought it was Shabbat the meaning to say that on Shabbos and an extra nefesh, an extra soul. But that's not what it says. What, what, what the Gomorrah is saying is, on, on Shabbos, we'll go after Shabbos. Since on Shabbos, you get an extra soul. Oy to the nefesh that I'm losing after Shabbos. So, so, so the rabbis put this statement, oi to the extra nefesh I'm losing after Shabbos at the beginning of Shabbos so that you should appreciate Shabbos. In other words, if you're being told at the beginning of Shavuos and this is the last chocolate, <laughs> now all of a sudden I'm appreciating it. Right? Now I'm appreciating it. You see, so so that's 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 the idea. Okay. So so how does this tie back to Shemitah? Because in the sixth, in the sixth year, God says he's going to give you an extra crop. Like a double crop, a boom crop. But but The rabbis say something very interesting. That will either be much more plentiful, or what you have might look like the same size, but when you eat it, it's going to fill you up and satisfy you because there's gonna be this miraculous aspect attached to it. And so I've given you all these examples so that you should understand this following thought, that sometimes a little bit can satisfy you quite a bit. right? So even if it doesn't look plentiful on the plate, Sometimes you just eat it, and one bite fills you up. And they say that that was a miracle by the chalas, by the lechem apanim, the showbread in the base of that the kahanim could eat one bite, and from one bite they would be filled up. Okay, but let's get back to this idea of where do we see the economic pendulum of boom cycles and bust cycles, right, built into the Torah. So I told you that there's one example, which is the idea that All of the land is going back to to the original owners, which means it's all going back to God, right? But I think that this is an even better example. The idea that in the sixth year, you have the boom time because God is telling us in advance that you're you're not going to have anything the seventh year. Okay, so there we see you've got boom and bust built into the rhythm of creation itself. All right, so now that begs the next question, which is, why have a bust year at all? Just keep it coming. Keep it coming, God. You know, my, you know I, if my pockets are full, no problem. I'll get another pair of pants with more pockets. You know, you don't have to worry about me. You know, just keep it coming, right? So, so why have a fallow period at all? That's the question, okay? So here's an answer. So it says that when the Torah... When the, when the Jewish people were entering into the land of Israel, right? We left Egypt, we're heading into Israel. And um, the, it says that the Torah, like, asked God, like, what's going to happen? Now that they're going into the land, they're going to have to work so hard, they're not going to study me. And, 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 and God said, don't worry. I'm going to give them Shabbos to rest. I'm going to give them, or not to rest, to learn you, to, to learn the Torah. I'm going to give you the seventh year, which will be an entire year for them to learn Torah. And I'm going to give them the Jubilee year, the 50th year for you to learn Torah as well. So, so, so now you see that basically this whole idea of economic swings, right? Based on this, why is God giving us this extra time? And the answer is so that we can learn Torah. You know, I, I, I'll tell you, I was sh- sharing this with the cover yesterday. Uh, a number of years ago, um, I, I, I met someone who, who was having a lot of uh, problems. Um, and uh, just without going into details, basically, his, his life was really, in each, in each category of his life, it was just falling apart. I didn't know him or anything like that, but I said to him, listen, you, you do have one thing going for you. One thing on your side. And he looked at me like, what? You know? And I said, you have time. You right now are in control of your time. And I said, you can use that. And, and I, I said, you should go to Israel. You know? And I, I recommended a program. And he shocked me. Like, it, I think it was later on that day, or it was the next day. He said, I booked my ticket to Israel. I'm, I'm doing that program. Mm-hmm. And his whole life changed around. His entire life changed around. And, uh, and it was a beautiful thing. But, but it seemed to me like here was an example where, where God gives us time, but why does God give us time? Why does God give us time? And the answer is ultimately to study Torah. You know, there, there are a lot of answers to that question, by the way. You can answer that question a lot of ways. But, but that's, that's a big answer. And just to give you another support for that... The Gemara says that if a person's life starts to go in a direction that they're not happy with, right, like things are starting to fall apart a little bit, the first question that they should ask themselves is, have they kept to their Torah schedule? It's the first question that the the Talmud tells us to ask ourselves. So it's very important, very important that we we set up regular times for study. And I promise you, I promise you, I'll I'll give you an example in a few minutes the Torah only gets better and it only gets richer the more you study it. It only gets better and it only gets richer. And you get to harvest crops, seeds that you planted years ago, all of a sudden you get to, you you see new fruit from it. And I'm going to give you an example in a few minutes of this. But it's a phenomenal thing. The Torah is this, this incredibly organic, beautiful thing that just keeps on blossoming, keeps on blossoming. Okay. So, you know, I want to... I want to uh, get into another topic now, which is Sfiras HaOmer, this this counting of the Omer toward Shavuos, and it will touch on, on on some of the things that we've talked about on Shemitah and Yovel. But before I do it, I just want to take one quick break and read you a poem because I, I just I don't usually read you poems, but but I, I saw this poem. I thought it was really beautiful. It's by a uh, a wonderful poet named Yehoshua November. He's an award-winning poet and. Uh, there's a particularly beautiful poem, if you can find it online, about going to the mikvah and seeing uh, guys with tattoos in the mikvah. You know, it's really, it's a gorgeous poem. Um, but anyway, so here's a, this is called How a Place Becomes Holy. Sometimes a man will start crying in the middle of the street without knowing why or for whom. It is as though someone else is standing there, holding his briefcase, wearing his coat. And from, and from beneath the rust of years, come to his tongue the words of his childhood, I'm sorry, and God, and do not be far from me. And just as suddenly the tears are gone, and the man walks back into his life, and the place where he cried becomes holy. It's Yahushua November. Um, so, so we're on this launch toward holiness right now. We've, we've left, we've left Egypt and we're heading toward Mount Sinai. And by the way, that's on the deepest level. That's what's happening to all of us right now. We, we can't see our, we can't see Mount Sinai in the distance, but it's there. And we're walking inexorably toward it. All of us, even today, you know, Reality is so deep. That's just one level. We don't see it, but but it's going on around us. And, And we're counting the days until we get there. So everybody knows that the 50th day we left Egypt, we received the Torah at Mount Sinai. And that day, the day we received the Torah at Mount Sinai, in any number of different examples, refuses to be limited to description or time or space or number because the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai was God literally putting the infinite into the finite or revealing the infinity of the blueprint of creation. So let me give you a few examples. Every Torah holiday in the Torah has a date the day that we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai doesn't have a date on the calendar. It refuses to be situated in terms of a calendar date. What it says is, celebrate this day 50 days after we left Egypt. Okay? And then if you count the days, you know which day it is. But it doesn't tell you like other days, like, like Yom Kippur, for instance. It says the 10th the day of the 7th month. Or Pesach, it tells you, you know, the 15th day of the first month. Doesn't do that with the Torah. Because the revelation of the Torah is beyond, 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 beyond. Now, I'll give you another example of this. And there, there are many examples of this, by the way. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not giving you all the examples. Um, another example of this is that we're counting to that time. Right? Every day we're counting a different number. <clears throat> we're counting up. So now, if you were to ask me, how would you institute this system? I would say, okay, great. So we're counting... And then the biggest, what's the biggest counting that we're gonna do? The number 50. That's it. We're gonna count number 50, and that's gonna be the wow, that's gonna be the culmination of all this, this, this amazing you know, heavenly service that we've been doing. And so what's the actual mitzvah? The mitzvah is that we don't count the 50th day. We count up to 49, and then it becomes the 50th day. Do you know why you don't count the 50th day? Because it's beyond that. <laughs> You can't even put a number on it. Like it's it's like a chutzpah. It's like a chutzpah to, to even suggest that you can put parameters around it. You know, the rabbis struggle with this question. How is it possible that God even revealed the Torah? How is it possible that God put the infinite within the finite? How did the Torah, or phrase, phrase the question this way? How did did the Torah fit into this world? They they asked this question, and the answer is, the Apter Rebbe gives it, the answer is, I don't know if you know this, but the the revelation of the Torah actually happened on Shabbos. It happened at dawn, Shabbos morning. So Shabbos is a day that that has no boundaries. And so because it has no boundaries, God was able to actually Give us the Torah on that day. Because otherwise, how do you how do you fit the Torah into the world? Of course, the world itself is a subset of the Torah, but that's already deeper. But anyway, this is this is how that that, that question is answered. Alright, so we don't we don't count the 50th day. Now there's a very deep teaching that goes with that, which is this idea that the number seven, remember, whenever we're talking about numbers and things like that, you know, you have to understand that, you know, we always talk about the Torah as being the infinite compressed into the finite, which means that God, in terms of giving us the Torah, is operating on so many different levels, right? He, he, he needs to communicate because there's, there's so much in the Torah. I mean, how, how can the Torah actually be this tiny? It's, this is tiny when we know that the whole world is made out of the fabric of the Torah. So this is, this, is the, this is amazing condensation. This is the infinite compressed into the finite. If you were to actually have the eyes to see, right, or the sophisticated instruments to measure, and you were able to take a, say, a kosher Sefer Torah, right, and zero in on one letter, you would see that the energy from that letter like, you know, mushroom clouded, not, not just like beyond this world, but into other dimensions. Right? Rabbi Wolfson says that, that the Torah portion of the week, that the world is weaved out of the letters of the Torah portion of the week. Right? So it's all these energies combine to make the reality that we're living in. That's why human effort, by the way, is so essential. That's why prayer is so essential, because we're living in a malleable environment. That's the point. That's, that's why it's so um, toxic to think that you're stuck. No one's stuck. No one's stuck. No one's stuck. No one is stuck. Okay, so, so what does seven mean then? Okay, So so I mean, you know... I'm just saying this because people have to just get out of the, the small-mindedness and the, and the pettiness of, of thinking, like, oh, numerology. Ugh, I can't stop throwing up, you know? It's like, please. It's like such disrespect. The word itself is such disrespect when, when, when applied to a Torah context. These are different wavelengths that God is communicating to us on, right? So, so we know that the number seven represents nature, Right? Because God made the world in, 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 in seven days. Okay? And, and there's seven notes in the musical scale. There, there, there are many sevens. But the, the, the point is, is that that represents the contours of, of the natural environment. Okay? So the idea of the 50th day, we're doing seven cycles of seven. Right? Or the 50th year, rather. Seven cycles of seven, which means Utmost human effort. That's what that means. Utmost human effort. And that's why if you look in, in, in prayer books, you'll see that the, um, each one of these days, of these 49 days, correlates with a different sphere. And by the way, um, I need to check this, so until I check it, I'm just putting it out as an interesting idea, but my, my kishkas tell me that this is accurate which is if you look in in certain sort of kabbalistic charts and you look at this sferot the sferot are always represented as either circles or spheres right so i think that that's where the word sphere comes from sferot i mean because i mean anyway so we can look it up but um but anyway the uh The idea is that each day correlates with a different personality trait that we're supposed to fix in order to get to that place of being able to perfect ourselves and being able to receive in the highest way, to make ourselves into the greatest vessel so that we can receive the most light, right? Because everybody knows that if you have a cup and it's got a hole in the bottom, it's not great, it's not a great cup. You can, you can use it for something else. It's not a great cup. Now, let's say the hole isn't on the bottom. Let's say the hole is on the side, like a few inches up. All right, that's a better cup, right? Let's say the hole is like just on the very, like toward the top, then you can almost get an entire cup sort. That's pretty good, right? Or let's say the hole is only the entrance to the cup itself, right? That's the ultimate, that's a cup, right? So, that's what we want to do. We want to make ourselves into the ultimate vessel to hold, like, the greatest amount of light. And um, what's interesting is, is that each day is further divided into, into subcategories. So, for instance, you have, um, you have chesed. Chesed is the first week. That's kindness. And, and the first day of that would be chesed sheba chesed. Right? The kindness within the kindness. And gevurah Sheba Chesed. Gevorah is sort of like the, the shape or the contours of, of something. So, so, so that's the, you have to make sure that you have parameters in order to, to hold that, that energy, a definition of what it is that you want from that thing. Then you have Teferit. Teferit is the harmonizing of Chesed and Gevorah. So that means that you need the right balance of those two things, right, in order to get it right. And then it goes on to to Netzach, to Hod, to Yesod, to Machus, and all of these things. And then you start the next week, Gevora. Now you've got the Chesed within the Gevora, the Gevora within the Gevora, the Teferah within the, ge- the Gevora. And there are 49 different permutations of this. Now, what I want to do is, I want to give you another way of, uh, of appreciating what that's telling us about life, okay? Which is, do you know what a gyroscope is? A gyroscope is something that's supposed to keep things level, right? To keep things balanced. But if you ever look at the way a gyroscope spins, it looks so wobbly. So it's like this very strange combination of things. It looks really wobbly, but the whole point is, it's a construct in order to keep things steady. You see, something that I think people just don't appreciate fully, and until we really seize this point, I don't think we're going to really have our feet planted on the ground and know how to approach life best, is that God keeps changing everything on us. (laughs) All of the time, by design. By design. You see, you know, have you ever heard of anyone like, you know, I remember my, like, imagine an old man reflecting on his life. I remember my last problem. It was in my early 30s. <laughs> yeah, sort of semi-nostalgic for that. But anyway, we put out that fire, and it's been pretty much smooth sailing for the next 50 years. Like, Does that describe anybody's life? Anybody's life? Why? Is it that no one in the history of humanity has ever gotten it right? I don't think so. There have been a lot of people. Someone should have gotten it right at some point, right? Like, I think the ultimate example, Abraham. Who's better than Abraham? What happens? God says, go to Israel. Lech He goes to Israel. And then what happens? There's a famine. His wife gets kidnapped. Right? So, the point is, is that... We're here in order to accomplish something, and the way we accomplish things is by facing challenges on a regular basis and doing our best to uh, confront them as best we can. We're, we, we for sure are not always going to get it right. Hopefully, we'll get it more right than we get it wrong. Many of us get it more wrong than we get it right. We do our best. We try to learn from our mistakes, keep going forward. That's what it is. But to understand that God is not like, okay, I'm through with this person. I'm through with that person. They, they did their thing. Okay, I'm going to give them the next 30 years. We'll be cool for them. It's it's that the reason why we're here is to transact challenges and then turn them into harmony or light. That's the point. That's the point. That's why the challenges never stop. Because that that's the rules of the game. That's why we're here. You see, so... So, so, I always think that, that the best attitude to wake up in the morning with, right, if you can do it, is, you know, I, I think of like baseball. You know, a, a baseball player, right, takes a bat, he, he steps up to the batting plate, and then the pitcher throws at him, and he doesn't say, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> That's, you have got to hit me with that ball. <laughs> you threw that ball really fast in my direction. Like a batter doesn't say that. A batter is standing there ready and prepared for that, is expecting that. And when it comes, he does his best to hit it. Right? So this is, this is an attitude, what I think is just an example way of visualizing the right attitude to face life, to, to, to go through life, which is that you wake up in the morning, you grab your bat, right? Metaphorically. You know, you grab your, your, your invisible bat, And you say, okay, and you expect the ball to come. And you say, okay, what's what's it going to be today? What's it going to be today? And then you say, okay, great, and you're anticipating whatever it is. Got to make that call. Okay, I'm making the call. Refrigerator broke. I knew it was going to be something. (laughs) There it is. Okay, today it's the refrigerator. Thank you, God. Please, not too many more things. (laughs) That, That should be enough for today. All right, going to work on the refrigerator today. And then this way, I think that a person is actually in tune with reality, in tune with what the rules of this world are, and isn't shocked or depressed by by the idea that there are challenges. Now, it doesn't mean a person can't get overwhelmed, but if a person enters into it, understanding this as a baseline assumption, then I think that it's a transformative type of thought, but, but more than just, "Hey, this is hey, this is a pep talk, and yeah, have a good attitude." I'm not saying that. I'm saying something much more profound than that. I'm saying that this is actually the nature of reality. This is why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing and what the whole plan is. Not just have a good attitude. It's a, just under, you know, understand what's going on. OK. So all of this is to tell you that seven represents human effort because seven represents what we are capable of doing. So seven times seven would be the way of conceptualizing the idea of I've done the most that I can do. If seven means effort, then seven squared means most effort, ultimate hishtablas, ultimate human interaction and effort, Okay. So now, when does the Torah come? On the 50th day. I've gone through everything that I can go through. I've reached the limits of my human capacity. And now on the 50th day, God takes me to awesome heights. Awesome, awesome, awesome heights. Now, to places that I couldn't go beforehand. Now, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story. I saw this in the news this past week. Apparently, the story's been around, but, but, but it's, you know, they say it's documented. It's a true story. You can look it up for yourself if you like. I haven't got the name of the guy. But, um, but this is an amazing, amazing story, for me anyway which is kind of, kind of like they describe him as an average Joe, uh, not an intellect at all, right? Just kind of guy who liked to party and didn't study much or anything like that. That was not his focus at all. And uh, I don't even know what he was doing uh, up until then. And, but, you know, he was either college age or out of college or whatever it is, but he wasn't a kid or anything like that. So he got attacked, unfortunately. And they started punching and kicking him in the head. And he went into a coma. And when he emerged from the coma, he was a mathematical genius. Mm. And wherever he looks, he sees geometric shapes. And he's this amazing genius mathematician now. Right, and he does art he, he, does, he does art and he draws all these like very complicated mathematical designs that he integrates into um, art shapes and he's like this genius level mathematician now that he does this now as a career so what's so astounding, well first of all it's really astounding you know, I mean to, to, but 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 what they said, their understanding of the story that I read, is even more astounding, because what they said was that this suggests that we all have this in us. They they found a way to kind of rewire his brain to access this through the horrible trauma. But all of us have this levels of genius within ourselves. Now this is this is an astounding this is an astounding thought. Now we we all know this because you know they talk about how you only use a certain portion of your brain, but they don't tell you if you get kicked hard enough in the head <laughs> you can access it. I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't try to do it. I don't I don't know that anyone's gonna succeed that way. But the idea that this actually can happen now—that that, that potential is so relatively speaking on the surface, like in other words, what the reason why this is such a dramatic idea to me is because we've talked about it many times, and this is the context that we've talked about it up 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 up, up until now which is the idea of God circumcising our hearts. Okay? So, remember, it says in the Torah, very interestingly, it, says in, it talks about this in two different places. In one place, God says, circumcise your heart. So what's the idea of just circumcising your heart? That there's a covering over your heart. There's a blockage on all of our hearts, men, men and women. There's this, and that when God says, circumcise your heart, that means open up your heart, open up yourself to, this, to these amazing levels. Right? Okay. Now, we can do that to a certain extent in our life. And then God says, in a different place, I will circumcise your heart. Meaning to say, if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. And this very much parallels the idea... I, I don't, you don't have yeah, it at no, all? No. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, this very much parallels um, the idea that Mashiach can come early, but if it doesn't come due to our efforts, if we don't transform the energy of the world and harmonize the energy of the world through our Torah observance, then, then there's a certain deadline, a certain cutoff time, where God is just going to just bring the world into its next stage. So that's the idea of God saying, I'll circumcise your heart. You circumcise your heart, but if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. But anyway, this implies this tremendous transformation of consciousness that's going to take place. Now, if you just think about it in terms of the level of circumcising your heart, it it, it feels like more of a mystical idea. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, yes, and then in the end of days, if we haven't done it, God's going to do it. And then you go, okay, you know, I hear the thought and everything like that. But this guy got kicked in the head and became a math genius today. Do you understand? In other words, this is not a mystical idea. This is something that our potential is right there on the surface. It's like right there waiting to happen. So, so this is a very real thing. And then that's probably just the smallest taste of what's going to happen in terms of how we're going to see the world and how much more we're going to understand about everything. So, so now, let's make this a little more practical and, and, I, and just get some, ad, ad, just some advice about how, how we can fix our midos, because all these different sphero that we're, that we're counting are, 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 are referred to as the, 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 the mitos. And mitos is a very interesting word, because if it's it's in in sort of popular Torah language, it would be translated as your character traits, right? Um, he, he's got great mitos. You'll hear someone say that, right? He's got great mitos, meaning he's got really, you know, a really beautiful personality, like he's really like balanced and everything like that. And by the way, that's the reason why I brought up the the gyroscope, because the whole gyroscope notion is that. The reason why you have so many subcategories within each category is to teach us how to stay balanced in every situation. And and that's the idea. A person has to be very fluid and very flexible in order to know what to do in the moment. And while we're on that subject, I gave a a, a talk last week. Uh, I called it, Are You a Success? And it was a whole notion of how we can measure success in our own lives. So I was having lunch with someone and he said to me, you know, I heard the talk and What's your definition of success? Because you didn't, you didn't, you didn't say, right? And the, the truth is, is that I, I think that there are many definitions of success. And what, what I was trying to say last week was that it's, 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 it's crucial for a person to come up with their own definition. Because if you don't come up with an, your own definition of success, society has many definitions and you will be held hostage to their definition of success unless you come up with your own. Okay? Just by default. Okay? So that's, that's really important. So he was saying to me, so what's your definition of success? So he emailed me. He said, I want to give you time to think because I'm going to ask you this question. <laughs> so the truth is, is that I could give you many definitions. For myself. I'm just talking about myself. But as I was walking to shul yesterday morning, I thought, okay, so what am I going to tell him? And, and I thought of this definition, and I'll just share it with you for now. So I thought, you know something? I heard Reb Shlomo say in the name of the Ishbitzer Rebbe, that there are two kinds of Jews, you know? They're sort of like, he would say, like highway Jews. So what's that? That's the idea that you're walking down this highway. And what's on this highway? Shabbos, you know, kashrus, taras, ha things like this, right? And, um, and then he says there's another level. There's what he calls step-by-step Jews. And what's a step-by-step Jew? So that's someone who every step that the person takes, he's asking himself, what does God want from me this moment? Right? And I saw Rav Shlomo say that this was the deepest, deepest, deepest way to go through life. Right? What does God want from me this moment? and you'll find that if you ask yourself that question or if you try to ask yourself that question you know on a you know a fairly regular basis some things that you'll be pulled in the direction like oh i got to do this and i got to do that if you ask yourself that question sometimes you go no 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 i'm needed right here <laughs> right now to do this and you'll find that it will actually shift your perception and 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 your priorities. So it, it's a very interesting thing, because sometimes God is putting right in front of you what he wants from you in that moment. Now, of course, again, this gets back to the whole gyroscope thing, and, and learning how to plan, because people who are so in the moment, right? A lot of those people never get married and never get jobs, right? Because they're too busy being in the moment. So there's a lot of there's a lot of um, uh Balancing—it's a big balancing act that a person has to do. They have to have long-term objectives, midterm objectives, short-term objectives, and then balance that with what am I needed to do right this second, right? And this is this is the whole gyroscope thing, right? This is this is very this is very challenging. It's extremely challenging to get that right. Um, so, getting back to this notion of success. I thought to myself, you know, to, to, to know, or to the extent that any of us can know, but to feel as though I'm doing what God wants from me this moment, that, that would be a definition of success, I think, you know? Um, okay, so so back to this idea of we're counting the sphero, we're counting to number 50, which we said is beyond, 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 beyond. Now, on a more practical level, how can we get to this place? So, so, Nachman says something amazing, and I just, I, I just counted it for myself again, and it's just so beautiful just to kind of see it with your own eyes, just the truth of it. Something very, very beautiful. If you take the 12 tribes of Israel, and you count the letters in the names of the 12 tribes, you know, starting with Reuven and going through Yosef, it adds up to 49 letters. Right? So we said that we're counting 49, and then the 50th we get the Torah. So Rabbi Nachman says when all of Israel, when the Jewish people come together in unity, right, that's the idea of the 12 tribes, the letters of the 12 tribes, if you count them all together, if they're all together in unity then we are able to go to the next quantum level, right? Now, let's talk about Harsinai and unification now on another level. Listen to this amazing, amazing gamatria from the Jekovar Rebbe. Amazing, okay? He says, see, Vayichan, Vayichan means to encamp. And that's a very big word in the Torah. Because what it says, I, saw, I just saw from the Yakut Shmoni a, a very g- great question. It's a, it's a question that I had had, which is, why didn't God just give us the Torah right after we left Egypt? Like, why wait? What's this whole process mm-hmm. of waiting? Okay, so we have this idea of getting ready and making ourselves a vessel. Okay, all good. I, I accept it all. But why not just give us the Torah right away after we leave Egypt? You know, the what what could be a better introduction than than the than the sea spli- splitting and then wiping out our enemies and then we're there and then keep it going. You know, just ratchet it up to the next level and then there's the Torah, right? That that works. So the Alcuachmoni says there wasn't unity among the Jewish people. We were fighting and therefore we couldn't receive it. We were in a vessel. We were in a vessel because there was fighting. See, shalom, shalom, is the ultimate vessel. When you have peace, you can hold things. See, you have a lot of people who are very, like in Hollywood, you have endless examples of this. People who are, quote-unquote, very successful, and they're miserable. They're miserable. Why? Because they don't have the vessel. They don't have the peace in their life, the shalom, in order to hold the blessing. So you can have a lot of things rushing into the basket, but if there's holes in the basket, then it all falls out. Right? So we need a vessel to hold the blessing. And the vessel is Shalom. The vessel is peace. Okay? Then you can appreciate everything. Remember, what is another amazing Ishmael what do, why, do we, why do we talk about Oneg Shabbos? What's Oneg Shabbos? That means the bliss of Shabbos. What's Oneg Shabbos? That's, Appreciating not just what something new that you get, but what you have, the ability to appreciate what you have, is bliss, right? But in order to so, but you need the you need the shalom of Shabbos in order to have the eyes, and the tranquility, the peace of mind, to be able to perceive what it is that you actually have. That takes, you know, a lot of people have a lot of things, but they don't appreciate what they have. Why? Because they don't have those Shabbos eyes. They don't have the that ability to, to just sort of like step back from being interactive with creation, just to step back and to go, oh wow, look what you blessed me with God. So because the Jews were fighting when we left Egypt, then God doesn't give us the Torah until the 50th day, until this word Vayichan. So what does Vayichan mean? It means to encamp, that we encamped at Mount Sinai. Now, why is this, this word so important? because it's in the singular, and it's describing all of Israel. Okay, so if you look at the Rashi there, he'll tell you why did did we encamp in the singular, and he says these words that are like ringing out for all eternity. We were like, one person with one heart. Right, isn't that beautiful? One person with one heart, the whole nation of Israel. Right? And all, remember, all the Egyptians that joined us also. There are a lot of Egyptians that joined us, right? Known as the Arab Arab. Rav. They saw the truth of it and they were like, we're going with you guys, you know? That's where it's at. So all of us together were at peace. We were like one person with one heart. Okay. Now, what did we just say? We just said if you take the names of the tribes of Israel and you unify them, then you've got 49, and then you're prepared to get to this awesome next quantum level of the 50th level, the receiving of the Torah. So there's this direct correlation between unification and then transcendence. You unify, then you transcend, okay? So now listen to this. The world itself, matter, physicality, classically is understood as having four separate ingredients, Ruach, Esh, Mayim, and Athar, translated as fire, water, wind, and earth. Okay, these are the four fundamental aspects of, of material reality, okay? Now listen to this, listen to this. This is now the Jehovah Rebbe. all right? I'll say it and then I'll explain it, okay? He says, if you take the gematria of "Vayichan Sham Yisrael," that the Jews, the, the Jewish people, Israel, encamped in this amazing unified way at Mount Sinai, like there was peace. There is now peace, right? So, if you take if you take the if you take the um, the gematria of that phrase "Vayichan Sham Yisrael." meaning the encampment, the unified encampment of the Jewish people, that equals in Gematria, Esh, Mayim, Ruach, and Afar. The four elements all coming together. In other words, when we achieved unity among ourselves, we unified all the disparate elements of material reality. Right? Once we became one, remember the 49 days leading up, the 49 letters of the 12 tribes, once we became one, we organized and solidified all of the elements of material reality. So this amazing correlation between peace among us and harmonizing the entire universe. And then the Torah gets given. This is mind-blowing. This is mind-blowing stuff. You know, what we can do. And, and 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 it's just done through like these crazy simple tools, like smiling. I, I'm, I'm you know I, I'm I'm not trying to be funny here, saying hello, <laughs> right? Like things like this. Like we don't realize the the, the awesomeness of things like this, because all these things create peace. Rabbi Nachman says something else. It's a very fundamental teaching. When you give someone else the benefit of the doubt, you bring peace into the world. Do you hear that? When you give someone else the benefit of the doubt, you bring peace into the world. Because instead of saying, ah, you know why he didn't do that? Because of this or this or this or this, or he means to do that or that to me. Or how about just giving him the benefit of the doubt? (laughs) You know what? Maybe he had something in mind. He seems like a nice guy. Normally speaking, he's a nice guy. Maybe he had something else in mind. Okay. Like, look how the world is completely different. Because then the next step about saying, you know, he meant this, this, and this, and this, is then telling someone else all the things that he meant. Right? And then all of a sudden, there's all this fighting in the world. Or you give them the benefit of the doubt, and then all of a sudden, it's a shut book. Right? And if we have to give each other the benefit of the doubt, how much more do we have to give God the benefit of the doubt? Because can we really know what's going on with God? (laughs) I mean, he's so beyond, right? We know he gave us chocolate, so he's got to be good. <laughs> he absolutely would not have given us chocolate if he wasn't good. Mm-hmm. And I am actually really serious about that. <laughs> so, all right, so he's good, and he's certainly smarter than I am. So, he, he knows what he's doing. Um, let's just end with. Let's just end with. Uh, one, one last thought from, from the Megalia Mukos. Okay? So he says this word, Sinai is Roshe Tebos, meaning it's a, 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 an acrostic, an acronym, 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 um, that each one of these letters for, for Sinai, remember, that's Sinai, Mount Sinai, that's where the Torah is given. So that's Samech Yud Nun Yud. Okay? So each one of those letters is going to stand for a different word. But listen to how deep this is. He says, so what's Sinai? So Sinai means the revelation at Sinai, right? So that means the Torah, that means this 50th level. So Sinai is Sod uh, Yitsios Nishamas Yisrael, which means the secret of the emergence of the souls of Israel. The secret of the emergence of the souls of Israel. You see, that's what the Torah is. Because Sinai can mean, can mean Torah here, or it can mean Hashem. That, that, that the secret of the Jewish people, if you will, the secret of the souls of the Jewish people is Torah. Is Torah. That's the X factor. That's the 50th level. Right? And remember, at Mount Sinai, we all became converts. All of us. Even if we were Jewish for since Abraham. We all converted to Judaism, so to speak, at Mount Sinai, all of us. So the emergence of the souls of Israel happens at Mount Sinai because we're invested at that moment with Torah, which is this absolutely transformational force in the world. And just to give you one more idea on Torah, because I promised you, I told you, I said, the more you study, the deeper it gets. And so this was a a new thought that I had. And so I just share it with you as an example of this. Which is Sinai, also is it's a it's a samach, which is a circle. So so we made a circle around Mount Sinai. We encamped in a circle around Mount Sinai. Here you see that the word itself is a picture and a description of the event. Sinai also has the letter nun in it, right? Sinai has nun in it too. Nun is fifty. Fifty is very significant because we received the Torah on the fiftieth day at Mount Sinai. Also, that we went to what's called the Shar Chamishim, we went to the fiftieth level. So both of those things are 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 indicated in the word Sinai as well. And then what are the remaining letters Yud and Yud, which is the name of God? We received it from God. All right, but that 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 thought I already shared with you. here, here here's the new level, Yud and Yud is actually a very interesting uh, name of God. So where does Yud and Yud come from? Yud is actually a contraction, Yud and Yud is actually a contraction of two names of God. Yud ke Bovke and Aleph, Dalad, Nun, and Yud. Okay, those are two names of God, which basically um, mean God within borders, master within borders, and master beyond borders. And if you actually look in a Sephardic sitter, you'll see that those two names are interweaved all of the time, so that you have, you they alternate letters, right? Yud kevavke and aleph daled nun Yud yud are interweaved, so that if you look at the first letter, it will be the yud of yud kevavke, and if you look at the last letter, it will be the yud of aleph daled nun and yud, and so when you see this name of God yud and yud together, it's a contraction of these two names which means, basically, heaven and earth. Because why is the Yud-Yud name indicated in Sinai, the word Sinai? Not just because we encamped in a circle around Mount Sinai. Not just because of the Nun, because we got it on the 50th day after we left Egypt, and that we, we progressed to the Shar HaMishim, to the 50th level. Because of the Yud-Yud, and Yud, God, master of heaven and earth, God brought heaven down to earth. And that's expressed in the word Sinai as well. Heaven integrating within earth and the blueprint of all reality being revealed. Amen. Okay. <laughs>